Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 171 for the week ending, September 13, 2019, the Jay Clayton Speaks or Not edition. As SEC Chairman Jay Clayton scolds the rest of the world for its lack of anti-corruption enforcement and does not say why he wants to dump a PCAOB board member, Tom and Jay are back to discuss some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. They include Jay Clayton scolding overseas anti-corruption enforcement. Why does uh, Clayton want to get rid of PCAOB member Kathleen Hamm? The fair pay to play law and what it will mean for the NCAA and college athletics. Did the SFO put in a self-certification requirement in its recent guidance on cooperation? How can integrity monitors help to limit adverse consequences in healthcare? The in New York University PCCE gets a new executive director as Allison Cooley joins the group. How can you process personal employee data under GDPR? What happens when employees' ethical values are greater than those shown by an employer? And one commentator suggests we hold back on international enforcement against bribe takers. All of this and much more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, together with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors. And we are back for This Week in FCPA, episode 171 for the week ending, September 13th, 2019, the Jay Clayton Speaks or Not edition. Jay, as your uh, monikered namesake, Jay Clayton, scolded the rest of the world for its lack of anti-corruption enforcement, but did not say why he wants to dump a PCAOB member. We had lots of different compliance and ethics stories over the week. What say you? Uh, I say we should jump right into this and look at the, uh, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde faces of Jay Clayton. So uh, up number one, as you referred to, um, Jay Clayton, chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, chided counterparts all around the world for their spotty and lackadaisical enforcement of anti-bribery laws. In a speech in New York on Monday, he said countries that neglect to punish corporate bribery create a two-tiered system that give their domestic companies a leg up on U.S. firms. We sh he said we should, however, recognize that we are acting largely alone and other companies may be incentivized to play, and I believe that some, in fact, are playing strategies that take advantage of laudable efforts. Uh, according to his numbers of 44 countries who have agreed to make corruption of public officials a crime, members of uh, 
the OECD, only 21 have ever concluded an investigation. Clayton said he would not unilaterally ease his agency enforce as his agency's enforcing the law, which forbids U.S. companies and executives from trading favors or paying money to win business. But the chairman said he would press his concerns with overseas regulators and anti-corruption cops. So what does the bad side of Mr. Clayton have to say? Uh, Francine McKenna, our friend over at Market Watch, uh, wrote an article this week about <clears throat> PCAOB member Kathleen Hamm, who is apparently displeased either the Trump administration or Jay Clayton. And she was appointed commissioner and has been commissioner for about, um, or appointed in 2017, uh, short term, after the prior board was uh, summarily terminated. <clears throat> and uh, typically when you have uh, someone appointed midterm, uh, they are automatically reappointed for a second five-year term, but the uh, SEC, who makes the nominations in the form of Chairman Jay Clayton, has refused to do so. And <clears throat> although she's eligible for reappointment, they have not reappointed her, and she's had to reapply for her job, even though uh, no one has else has applied for it. So a very odd set of facts. Ms. Ham said she's seeking reappointment to continue the work she began some 20 months ago. Her efforts centered on protecting investors by applying her expertise and experience in technology, risk management, and compliance to upgrade and modernizing the PCAOB's approach to cybersecurity and emerging technologies. Um, so a very uh, strange set of facts. Uh, Jay Clayton had previously asked others to stay on. Uh, so we know he has done this before, yet uh, he didn't for Ms. Ham. So it's not clear why she's been singled out for this treatment, but it is certainly uh, unusual. Next up, we have an article from uh, my colleague in New Hampshire, Michael McCann, who's at the University of New Hampshire Law School. He writes about all things uh, sports and legal related for Sports Illustrated. And this week, Michael decided to take a look at what will happen if California's Fair, Play to P Fair Pay to Play Act gets signed into law. And uh, basically on Monday, the California State Assembly voted by a decisive 73 to 0 with six no votes to pass Senate Bill 206, uh, another version of which passed the California State Senate in May. And basically, this law would go into effect on January 1st, 2023, which is 40 months from now. Uh, the act could also be rendered moot by a potential NCAA reforms on proposed federal le legislation that, if passed by Congress and signed by the president, could occupy the same space. And this goes back several years ago to when Ed O'Banion was at UCLA and he actually brought a historic case against the NCAA that uh, the NCAA and its member schools had unlawfully conspired with companies, including electronic arts, to deny college players the values of their identities. And uh, so that comes back into the historical precedent. And uh, this is quite interesting because if you look at the economic value of um, – California being the sixth largest economy in the world, that there could be a situation where collegiate teams would pull out of the NCAA, NCAA 
and either potentially stay as part of the Pac-12 or have selected schools here in California that would go together and work under the new law. So this is something that we'll watch uh, eagerly over the next several months, but uh, Michael does a great analysis on the pros and cons of this law, and as I said earlier, it might all end up being moot and again at the end if the NCAA moves on their own. Well, let me, uh, let me just uh, say a little bit more about this one, Jay, because the NCAA, uh, through just uh, a, an incredible Trumpian temper tantrum, about this law, and uh, they have claimed it's unconstitutional that they have the right to make people work and not pay them um, inviolably and to force them to allow athletes to be compensated for their own images, their own toil, and their own signatures is unconstitutional. Uh, they claim that they will do something, and of course, uh, they've only been around 100 years and have done nothing. Uh, they've been studying, quote, studying, end quote, this issue, I think, for 18 months. Uh, they uh, begged the California legislature not to pass it. And now they said they're going to ban uh, other NCAA teams from uh, playing California teams. Well, what happens to California students who are at uh, schools outside the state of California? I bet the laws of California apply to them. And apparently there are 13 other states who have similar laws uh, working their way through their legislature. So not only one of the most uh, corrupt organizations around, but one of the most inane, stupid, and useless organizations, the NCAA, uh, finally may be coming to a, a, an end. But we should always remember, Jay, that no doubt uh, they will put uh, Western Kentucky on probation over this uh, because they have to throw a temper tantrum somewhere. All right. So next up, Tom, you've got a story for... Um some new information that came out out of the recent SFO guidance. Uh, can you tell us about their new self-certification process? Sure. Um, Aziz Rahman, who I personally had not been associated with, but he's a senior partner in um, a uh, investigations firm in the United Kingdom, posted a blog over on the uh, FCPA blog. It was a very interesting and he said uh, he really criticized the SFO's guidance um, because it didn't go far enough. He acknowledged it went further than any other guidance, but that, uh, that it, he felt like it was a missed opportunity. He was most critical, however, of a new requirement, not based in law. This is uh, what the SFO says you need for cooperation credit, where uh, if you claim attorney-client privilege, you have to uh, receive an certification from an outside counsel that the privilege exists. Um, this uh, is a very odd uh, requirement. Uh, first of all, Jay, uh, speaking for the lawyers of the world, I think uh, a lawyer can make a certification, whether he's in-house or not, as to whether something is a uh, attorney-client privilege, but that's just that lawyer's opinion. That doesn't carry the force of law. And if I certify that I believe something's attorney-client privilege, uh, the SFO, the Department of Justice, or J, J, even Jay Rosen could disagree with that, low that, that opportunity or situation would ever occur. But, um, so the SFO is requiring this. It's certainly a, a, an additional step for cooperation. And a, another uh, series of uh, questions he raised were around the uh, requirement that the company seeking or under investigation uh, provide the SFO 
information on industry knowledge, context, and common practices, and other actors relevant or in the relevant market. And uh, Mr. Robin is fearful that this would uh, cause one company to rat out other companies in the same industry. Well, um, that is a time-honored tradition in the energy industry and probably throughout most of the United States. You always rat out your competition, uh, particularly when they're engaging in illegal, illegal activities. And it, it doesn't take a very sharp, sharp prosecutor to uh, understand that once they get a hold of uh, one company in one industry, uh, that probably there are others in the industry engaging in the same or similar behavior. And that's what leads to, quote, or uh, what we call industry sweeps. We certainly saw that in the energy space. We've seen that in tech. We've seen it in pharma. We've seen it in private equity. And we're going to continue to see it because as regulators learn how an industry works and what the pinch points are for bribery and corruption, uh, they're always going to ask, uh, is anyone else doing this? So um, I thought some of his criticism was, was well-founded, but um, – he seems to uh, really want the SFO to go in a direction that I don't think uh, a government regulator is going to go. Nevertheless, we should uh, celebrate Mr. Rahman for uh, certainly a provocative article. And this uh, in, in independent certification is something that I think uh, companies need to think through how they are going uh, to do that. And is that going to have any more effect than if Tom Fox or heaven forbid, Jay Rosen certifies that, uh, the attorney client privilege applies in another case. All right. Well, next up, Tom, uh, I have a article, uh, that ran in corporate compliant insights, and this concluded a five part series on monitoring and healthcare. And this week I considered how using an independent, independent integrity assessment and monitoring can minimize negative impacts. Uh, many compliance practitioners in the healthcare space often ask if an independent integrity review and monitoring would be helpful where an organization may have reason to believe it has an actual or potential compliance program. By using an independent compliance expert, uh, this can be useful in dealing with a government enforcement agency and convincing the agency to look more favorably where severe sanctions may be otherwise imposed. An independent integrity monitor can be helpful to a healthcare organization where they may have compliance violations. By using an independent integrity assessment, an organization can demonstrate to the government entity that the problems with the company's compliance regime are not endemic or structural, but more isolated. The bottom line in healthcare regulation is that the government regulators and enforcement agencies would prefer not to exclude important healthcare providers who have issues. In the opioid crisis, an independent monitor could have done assessment around large numbers of drugs being prescribed by one doctor or prescribed to be delivered through one pharmacy. But the analysis could even gone much deeper by focusing on corporate compliance programs, their implementation, and their training. It could also have looked at those who spoke by using the hotline or other internal reporting mechanism. All of this means that an independent integrity monitor in the healthcare space can be used in a variety of ways and through a variety of mechanisms. Please join me next week when I begin a new five-part series on what ethical culture is and why it matters. Uh, next up, Tom, we have a, a new hiring to report at the NYU program on corporate compliance and enforcement. So, yes, Jay, this is one of the top uh, corporate 
uh, compliance and enforcement programs around, as you might guess by its name, NYU, obviously a great law school. And their program really focuses on a lot of the things that you and I not only talk about on This Week at FCPA, but actually engage in in the practice of compliance. And uh, we have Allison Cooley has joined the PCCE as executive director. She assumes her <clears throat> new position on uh, Monday. She has a uh, former federal prosecutor. She's uh, worked at Davis and Polk. She clerked for uh, uh, Judge uh, Parker in the Second Circuit and Judge Gleason in the Eastern District. So she's uh, well-versed in federal prosecution. And I think she's going to add a, a real plus to the PCCE. Uh, they do some great programs. Many of the announcements we hear from the Department of Justice officials come at PCCE events. Um, so welcome, Allison. I look forward to, uh, to visiting with you and uh, look forward to seeing where you take the uh, program on corporate compliance and enforcement. Uh, next up, we have another article that comes to us from the FCPA blog. This is from three attorneys at Norton Rose Fulbright from Laura White, Andrew Reeves, and Sarah Greenwood. And uh, what they consider in this article is GDPR, what are the grounds for processing personal data during an investigation. So uh, what they do is uh, they take a look in this article about who does GDPR apply to, what is personal data, and then what are the grounds to lawfully process personal data. Uh, first of all, you need to give consent. The consent needs to be freely given, a product of an individual's free choice. It needs to be specific and informed, given separately for each purpose, and unambiguous that it's clear in plain language. They also take a couple looks at uh, in legitimate interest, transparency, and finally, is the data pre protection and impact assessment required? The key takeaways from the article include it is now much more difficult to rely on an employee's consent as a ground for processing. If consent cannot be relied upon, another ground for processing will need to be identified. Where relevance is placed on legitimate interest ground, the balancing exercise between the interest of the employer and employee should be carefully documented. In some circumstances, a document impact assessment may be required. Processing should be necessity-based, and additional requirements may apply where personal data is being transferred from one jurisdiction to another. Finally, steps should be taken to limit, as far as possible, the review of sensitive personal data. So we uh, link to this in the show notes, and it's, uh, it's a really great article that takes a look at the concerns with JDP, GDPR. Uh, next up is a very interesting article by a gentleman named Michael Toby. And he takes a look at some real-world examples of how organizations are what he calls undervaluing internal reputational building. And what he means by this, Jay, is that uh, when you have your rank and file, your employee base out ahead of your organization, uh, you uh, sometimes cause reputational damage inside your organization. And he points to two recent examples literally pulled from the headlines. <clears throat> the first was Wayfair, which is, uh, I believe, the Boston-based uh, mattress manufacturer who were doing business with uh, one of the uh, <clears throat> federal camps in along the Texas border where migrant children who'd been uh, uh, ripped from their parents were being detained. 
and um, Wayfair was selling mattresses <clears throat> to this detention center. And the employees uh, literally revolted, saying that they didn't want to be a part of a company who uh, supported this policy of ripping uh, children away from their parents. Now, the management said, well, you know, we're selling them mattresses. It's better than them sleeping on the floor. But um, the, and at least that was their rationalization. But the, uh, the employee base ha- had nothing, would have nothing to do with that and actually walked out. Um, employees expect a reasonable level of compliance to morals, ethics, internal relationship, and uh, social responsibility. It may not have been that way in the past, but um, in the case of Wayfair, it's certainly here. And then he pointed to Google, who's had really an ongoing struggle with its reputation inside the company. Once again, this is inside the organization. This is not uh, external. But um, Google has had uh, trouble particularly around the Me Too movement where they paid off or rather uh, certain high-level executives retired with very high packages and they were accused of um, sexual harassment or other uh, Me Too violations. And um, Google employees actually had a walkout on that. Uh, Google employees have claimed that they were retaliated uh, against by the company over this. And uh, it's interesting where you have this sort of not really reverse leadership in terms of an employee's base being ahead of their leaders, but how uh, the actions of their leaders are internally hurting the reputation uh, and damaging uh, the company in a way that uh, is damaging its employee base, it's damaging the way it uh, can recruit uh, top uh, talent, and certainly millennials and, and perhaps others are very concerned about companies that engage in this type of uh, behavior or, in the case of Wayfair, would do business with these uh, federal detention centers. So I thought it was an interesting article, certainly uh, thought-provoking, and uh, kudos to Michael Toby for uh, <coughs> pinning it for us. So uh, our last article to consider in this uh, episode uh, also comes to us from the FCPA blog from uh, a gentleman named uh, Anton Masienko. hope I said that right. And Anton takes a look at when should foreign bribe takers be prosecuted. Um, recently, people have been speaking about the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, I guess it's FIPA, which seeks to make it a crime for foreign public officials to accept or receive bribes. Anton takes a look at that and uh, wonders when is the proper time uh, to actually invoke this law. Uh, Most of the time when we're looking at the FCPA, there tends to be a need to have a U.S. nexus, but now there are all sorts of different um, laws out there uh, that need to come into consideration. Uh, The U.S. government has to confront when uh, implementing anti-corruption sanction programs under the Global Magnitsky Act and also Section 7031C for immigration sanctions. They also uh, recently, uh, Tom Firestone and Maria Piantkovska referred to Article 16 of the UN Convention Against Corruption, which requires states to consider criminalizing bribe taking by foreign officials. So uh, at the end of the day, he says that the United States, uh, before they rush out to adopt a new statute, let alone before other countries do so, more clarity is desirable about precisely where the legislation is going to be applied. So uh, definitely a thought-provoking article. 
Uh, Tom, you've been giving a preview of the upcoming um, Converge 19 conference in Denver the first week of October. What were some of the things you spoke about this week? Well, Jay, before I get to that, I want to announce to the audience that we're going to have our first live recording of <clears throat> Everything Compliance at Converge 19. So uh, you and the other panelists uh, will be up on stage. So uh, this is going to be a real treat for certainly us and hopefully for the audience. Uh, if you're on the fence about attending Converge 19, I hope this would push you over uh, because to be a part of history literally with the first live podcast recording of Everything Compliance. But this week, Jay, on my Converge 19 podcast series, I took a look at or visited with Ricardo Pelafon and Ashley Lewis on their presentation of Building Your Brand. Michael Williamson on moving to a values-based culture. Mike Volkoff on the nuts and bolts of sanctions compliance. Uh, Nicole Pitts on increasing employee engagement. And tomorrow I have uh, your colleague, Eric Feldman, on uh, the CCO's role in performance management. We will have, uh, so we've had five podcasts this week. We had uh, five the, uh, for the prior week. We'll have five more next week. Uh, we're going to have some great presentations, uh, some really interesting uh, folks are going to talk, but much more than just the educational presentations. Uh, I'm doing a keynote. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Vince, uh, Vince Walden on that. Uh, it's going to be a great demonstration of how a da data analytic-based compliance solution can make your company uh, run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. So I'm looking forward to that. The Everything Compliance Podcast. Uh, I can't wait to see you guys up on stage and batting around questions uh, from the audience uh, in a way that uh, we've never had uh, the opportunity to do before. So well, we've linked to the uh, Converge 19 in the show notes. Um, Fox VIP is a code which will get you a complimentary registration. I hope you'll join us. J.I., Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, Sarah Haddon, and a host of others. So uh, really looking forward to that, Jay. Well, uh, I, I think we, uh, I know I've stopped following the Red Sox. Uh, uh, what, what is the uh, Astros report for this week? So the Astros report, they are the first team since 1939 to have two 20-plus run games in one season. Uh, they uh, just destroyed the uh, Angels while they were in town. <laughs> the last game of the series, they won 21-1. to The next day, they beat Oakland 15-1. to uh, And to show you the vicissitudes of baseball, on the third day, Oakland won 10-1. to So uh, baseball can bring you up or it can take you down. Uh, we are now tied for the best record in baseball. Uh, it's uh, the Astros and the Yankees are still tied, so we're we're battling for home home court for Game Seven, and uh, it's been a lot of fun to be an Astros fan this year as we uh, bring the World Series trophy back to Houston, bring it back well, I'm home. All, I'm all for that. What about the other Houston team? Was they robbed or what? Who? The Texans? Oh. No, they no, still too early. No, that's about what you expect from the Texans. But how about them <laughs> Cowboys who destroy the New York Giants? So, and uh, the Patriots I, are on their road to their next Super Bowl win, although they appear to have a bit of a hiccup with uh, uh, brother Antonio Brown. Yeah, I don't. Um, 
there's been a, a lot of uh, backlash on that from New England fans. So uh, uh, I, I think uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hopefully Coach Belichick knows what he's doing because uh, it's a very interesting personality to introduce into the locker room. And then with this uh, lawsuit, it's uh, it's not a good look for New England. So uh, uh, I don't know much more to say about it. But uh, talk radio has been uh, definitely against the uh, the Patriots this week, and even hearing that from the homers out there. So uh, I guess um, we should wrap it up then. Do you want to on take us home? Of, uh, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 171, for the week ending September 13th, 2019, the Jay Clayton Speaks or Not edition. Thanks for joining us and have a wonderful weekend. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA with myself and Jay Rosen. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.